Tonight we continue our study of the 119th Psalm, which we have described as a psalm exalting the Word of God. And I know of no better way to describe this beautiful psalm than to describe it as a psalm that truly, with every line, exalts the Word of God in words that are obviously given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and are certainly, therefore, worthy of our study, especially in a time, as we said when we began this series, where the Word of God is ignored or even attacked by so many, and where there is a lack of appreciation for the power and the purity of the Word of Almighty God. The psalmist did not lack respect at all for the power and purity of the Word of God. And he makes that abundantly clear in line after line of this beautiful psalm. We're in the next to the last paragraph or division of this psalm tonight as we look at verses 161 through 168. And remember, it is an acrostic psalm. Every paragraph consists of eight verses. There are 22 paragraphs because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And that's the way the psalm is designed. And with each verse, there is the word in the beginning of the verse that begins with that same letter of that particular Hebrew alphabet which is being dealt with. And this is no exception, obviously, as we look at the 21st division of this beautiful psalm. 161, the verse reads, Princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. What a statement. My heart stands in awe of your word. But the first part of that particular statement is, Princes persecute me without a cause. Who were these princes that were persecuting David? If indeed David is the author of this psalm, and he is by most, I believe, thought to be the author of this psalm, it could have been King Saul at this time, who would certainly have been a great prince in Israel, in fact, the first king of the United Kingdom. It could have been the, the princes of the Philistines, who were often a thorn in David's side, and those um, leaders of those five Philistine cities could have been those under consideration. We do not know for sure who the princes are that the psalmist has in mind, but it does remind us of something, and that is many times those in high places, those who have great wealth, those who have great power, are many times not those who have the greatest respect for the Word of God, let alone respect for those who respect and seek to obey the Word of God. Remember concerning Jesus, the Scripture says, the common people heard Him gladly. And what Jesus said about how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of, of heaven, not impossible, but difficult because of the additional challenges that are placed before such an individual by the material things of this world that many times blind people to the truly great riches that are found in God's Word. 
There are those of academia who have educated themselves out of their faith, if you will, and who are more concerned about secular education and secular attainment than they are about spiritual attainment, spiritual wisdom. There are the evolutionists among us who deride those who are the creationists among us and who condescendingly speak as though those of us who believe in creation in six literal days that God created the heavens and the earth are truly ignorant of something that is so obviously apparent to them and should be to us, they say, and that is that, no, all of this just came into existence by some big bang where something came from nothing, something that violates every law of science. Something does not come from nothing. Brad Hare pointed that out in his last series on last Wednesday night. And yet, there is that intimidation factor among those who are the princes, if you will, in the world in which we find ourselves tonight, who persecute and deride those who are Bible-believing people. And so while David speaks of the princes of his day, it brought to my mind, as I read and studied these verses, that we have so-called princes of our day who are persecuting us as well. Let's make sure, however, that as David spoke here, that they are also persecuting us without a cause. David had confidence when he said to God the Father, in effect, they are persecuting me without a cause. In other words, they have no reason to persecute me. Let us make sure that our lives are lived in such a way so that if persecution comes, it does not come justifiably, but without cause. Reminds me of what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4. Verses 15 and 16, remember? But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. If we're persecuted without a cause, then indeed we can rejoice. That brings to mind what the Lord himself taught in the great Sermon on the Mount. In the early part of that sermon at Matthew chapter 5, as he concluded the Beatitudes, he said what in those last verses of that first section? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, Matthew 5, 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He expanded on that. Blessed are you when, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And they persecuted David, the princes did, we could say, here. And David was a prophet as well, was he not? In the fact that he wrote many of the Psalms that are messianic or prophetic in nature. David was persecuted without a cause. The righteous are persecuted oftentimes in every dispensation, every generation, persecuted without a cause. And many times that intimidation can cause accommodation to be made to error. And that's a tragedy beyond description. I've mentioned this illustration before, but it applies again 
here concerning pressure that is placed and peer pressure. I mentioned that when we were in Malaysia and Seth's mom, Tiffany, when she was an eighth grader, was at the international school in Kuala Lumpur. And the head of the high school science department was brought into the eighth grade to to lecture on evolution after a survey had been made asking those eighth grade students whether they were creationist or evolutionist. And after the survey was taken, then the head of the science department came in and lectured, pushing strongly the evolutionary theory. Then they took another survey after the lecture by the head of the science department. It was not too obvious what the, uh, the emphasis was. And one of Tiffany's little classmates said, I was a creationist, but now I am a theistic evolutionist. She was intimidated by the princes, if you will, by those in academia, by those who were pushing an agenda of evolution, which has no basis, in fact, at all. But she felt that pressure to the extent that she didn't want to give up creationism, didn't want to become an evolutionist, but she compromised, basically, and said, now I'm a theistic evolutionist. In other words, I believe that God still created everything, but he used evolution to do so, which is anti-biblical, as is the evolutionary theory. Theistic evolution is opposed to Scripture as much as evolution is. It's an effort, however, to compromise based upon the pressures that many times are applied by the so-called princes among us. But David says, despite that persecution, even from those in high places, despite the pressures from those in high places, my heart still stands, as it were, in awe of your word. And why shouldn't it? When we consider its power, when we consider its perfection, when we consider its purity, when we consider its perpetuity, because Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Oh yes, there are many reasons to stand in awe of God's word. And closely related to standing in awe of God's word is the psalmist's next statement in the next verse, I rejoice at your word. Standing in awe of his word is closely linked to rejoicing at your word as one who what? As one who finds great treasure. And I could not help but think in reading this statement about another statement of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 13. In that great chapter where there are seven beautiful parables about the kingdom of heaven. In other words, about the church of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. They're one and the same. And remember what the Lord said in two of those brief but very powerful parables at Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 and 45, when he talked about the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Verse 46, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I could not help but think of these words of Jesus when I read the words of the psalmist, I rejoice at your word as one who finds 
great treasure. And when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven as being that treasure or like that treasure hidden in the field or like that pearl of great price, all of that still ties us back to the word because how is it that we learn about the value of the kingdom of heaven? How do we know anything about the kingdom of heaven at all? That is, how do we know about the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? It all gets back to the Word. You would have no knowledge of the kingdom unless the Word had revealed that knowledge to you. And so it is the Word at which we rejoice because it is that Word that leads us to the greatest treasure that man could ever find. And that is the kingdom of God. That is the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the psalmist's next statement is, I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. I hate and abhor lying, so does God. Six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him, Proverbs 6, beginning at verse 16, and among those seven things, a lying Tongue. Revelation 21.8 points out that all liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The Bible has a great deal to say about lying and the seriousness of lying. And there's a statement in an earlier psalm, Psalm 116 in verse 11 which may have particular application to the world in which we live tonight and everything that's going on in terms of the so-called scandals, which are not just so-called scandals. They seem to be uh, pretty scandalous without being so-called. There's an awful lot that is happening in our country today that is very, very troubling and very, very disturbing. And indications that... There are more people perhaps living today who are, who are less respectful of truth than perhaps at any other time in our history. Is it like this? I said in my haste, this is Psalm 116.11, I said in my haste, all men are liars. I said in my haste, all men are liars. In other words, it was so bad that in my haste, I just simply said, all men are liars. You know, we look at, at the troubling things that are happening morally in our land in every aspect of, of our society to a great extent. And we might be in haste <laughs> concluding that all men are liars. Well, no, not all men are liars. And the psalmist said, I said that in my haste. But apparently it was a time when there was so much falsehood, so much deceit, so much disrespect for truth and love for truth, that it was as though all men were liars. We must make sure that all men are never liars because there will always be at least be one of us that isn't. That will be me. And if you determine to say that will be you, then we'll have any number who are not liars. God is very serious in his word about the consequences of lying. I hate and abhor, double negative. I hate it, I abhor it. But on the other hand, but I love 
your law. I love your law. And then in Psalm 164, or 119, 164, the psalmist expresses this. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. Seven times a day. You know that though number seven is the number in Scripture that represents perfection or completion. And so the psalmist here is really using that number in a way to indicate constant praise that he had for God. Not necessarily literally seven times a day. I make sure that I praise God seven times a day. No, the expression is a figurative one designed to represent constant praise. Praise that is given in prayer, obviously. That's the obvious vehicle through which we praise God. Every prayer should have an undergirding in it of thanksgiving to God. Let your request be made known to God, Paul admonished in the Philippian letter. Let your request be made known to God. But he included in that admonition the importance of thanksgiving. That's Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing, verse 6, but in everything by prayer and supplication, and then what? With thanksgiving. There's the undergirding of prayer. Undergirding every prayer should be an expression at some point of our thanksgiving because we have so much for which to be thankful. And so, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. That's something that's just, it seems to be understood, as Paul expresses it, that ought to be a part of our prayers. Remember what Paul elsewhere wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. We could easily say praise without ceasing because prayer should certainly include that praise. And why should we praise him seven times a day? That is, why should we constantly be praising God? Because of his righteous judgments and our deep and abiding appreciation for what those righteous judgments have done for our lives and continue to do for our lives. And one of those products is peace. And in the next verse, he mentions that great quality that belongs to every faithful child of God. Great peace. Not just peace, but great peace. Belongs to whom? Those who love your law. Great peace belongs to those who love your law. But as we have often said, it is not the kind of peace that certainly we desire and pray for, and that is cessation from hostility. And we live in a very turbulent time from that standpoint, and we need to pray for that kind of peace, obviously, a cessation of hostility and an absence of of war. But the peace about which the psalmist writes here is that peace about which Jesus spoke when he said to his disciples in John 14, 27, Peace I give to you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That's the great peace. That's the great peace that belongs to the faithful child of God. 
But the faithful child of God is one who loves the law. But how does one manifest his love for the law of God? Jesus said it in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so our love for the law has to be manifested in the keeping of the law. And as we keep that law, the product, one of those great products, is peace. The peace, as Paul describes it, that surpasses all understanding. And how can we know that we have that peace? Not by a better, better felt than told situation. Not about what we supposedly feel in our hearts, but by what we can know that we know based upon what is revealed in the law of God. For us, the law of Christ. I may have mentioned that years ago when I was a student at Memphis School of Preaching, we attended a debate between the late guy in Woods and a Pentecostal preacher. And that debate was held in two different congregations in a four-night period, I suppose, as I recall. And Brother Woods did his usual admirable job in defending the truth and clearly defeating the error of Pentecostalism in that debate. And it was so compelling in terms of the impact that it had upon that error that the very last night of that debate, I was sitting next to one of my teachers, the late Frank Young, and at the end of the debate, a lady stood up in the audience and cried out, but wait, wait, you haven't heard all the evidence. I'm not absolutely sure, but she may have patted her blood-pumping organ when she said it. What was she saying? She was saying, in effect, I feel the impact of what Brother Guy in Woods had brought out from the Word of God. But, but, you just don't know how I feel. It was as if she was saying, I know what the Word says and what you have said, and I know you've backed it up with the Word of God, but, but, you haven't heard all the evidence. What evidence was she wanting to present? Evidence, tragically, that was not based upon the revealed Word of God, but based upon a better felt than told feeling. And tragically... That's what so many in the religious world tonight have based their faith upon. Not upon the word of God as it is revealed, but upon a feeling. Great peace have those who love your law. And nothing causes them to stumble. What is it that will keep us from stumbling? Well, David tells us, loving the law. And loving the law, as we have seen, means keeping the law. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. In other words, our obedient faith continually to this word will keep us from apostatizing. doesn't mean we're not going to sin at times, but we continually are cleansed by the blood as we keep on walking according to the word, walking in the light as he is in the light. Gets us back to a passage we looked at in the lesson this morning. Remember 1 Peter chapter 1, 
verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope by, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God, kept from stumbling, we could say, by the power of God, through what? Faith. Faith in that word. Faith in that word will keep you from stumbling. Now, remember Second Peter chapter 1, and in beginning in verse 5, those Christian graces adding to your faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge to knowledge, self-control to self-control, perseverance to perseverance, godliness to godliness, brotherly kindness to brotherly kindness, love, For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Here it is. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. David says, Those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. That's exactly what Peter says, that if you will incorporate into your life these beautiful Christian graces and grow continually in those Christian graces as you feed upon the Word of God, then you have that hedge, as we talked about it this morning, that Satan cannot arbitrarily remove, but that only you can remove by your lack of faith in this word. That's the kind of power that resides here in the word of God. And it produces a hope about which David next writes, Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. He doesn't just say, I hope for your salvation and ignore your commandments. Because if you hope for salvation, you can't ignore the commandments. The only one who has hope for salvation is the one who is doing his commandments. In Romans chapter 8, in verses 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul speaks of being saved in this hope. Verse 24, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with what? with perseverance. We wait for that hope of eternal salvation, but we wait for it with perseverance. We persevere. We keep on keeping on. And we anticipate that ultimate and final salvation as we do His commandments. And then he reiterates, My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them A little? No. I love them exceedingly. I love them exceedingly. And then in the final verse of this paragraph, I keep your precepts and your testimonies. Now, if you go back to 166, Lord, I hope for your salvation and do your commandments. Verse 167, my soul keeps your testimonies and I love them. Then verse 168, I keep your precepts. 
And so you look at those key words in those verses. I hope, I do, I keep, I love, and then we're back to keeping. All of that intermingled so that you cannot possibly come away from this or any other study of Scripture with the conclusion that loving God can exclude keeping His commandments. The only way you can love God, the only way you can show your love for God, is by keeping His commandments. And then in the last phrase, He reminds us, For all my ways are before you. In other words, we may be able to fool other people by a nominal approach to our Christian living. We may be able to be able to hide all sorts of things about ourselves from from everyone as far as that goes, but you can't hide any of it from God because he sees all our ways. It's reminiscent of what the Hebrews writer penned in Hebrews 4.13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now that's a passage that reminds us that not only does God see it all, but one day we're going to give an account for it all. But isn't it wonderful to think about the fact that if we've been forgiven, that God has forgotten, as he has promised to, and therefore we won't meet again at the judgment those sins that have been, a character, been characteristic of our lives if we have taken care of those sins by becoming his children and by living faithfully as his children. Everything is open before him. And yet, through his love, and through that word which demonstrates and manifests his love and his will for us, we can rest assured that we have been forgiven. The writer of Proverbs, in Proverbs 5.25, issues a similar sentiment to that of David in Psalm 119, 168, when he says, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The Lord ponders all our paths. Nothing gets by him. Nothing gets by him. But thanks be to God that because of Jesus Christ and his wonderful sacrifice, the sins that we commit can be forgiven. To the child of God, those sins are forgiven as John describes the process in 1 John 1, 7 through 9. That if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses, that is, keeps on cleansing us from our sins. If we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from most of our unrighteousness? No. From all, all unrighteousness. Cleansed from all unrighteousness. Now doesn't that produce the great peace about which David wrote? The knowledge that we are forgiven. But the only way to have that knowledge is not by a better felt than told experience, but by knowing that we know him 
and hereby we know him if we keep his commandments, John wrote in 1 John 2, 3. And so the child of God who has obeyed the gospel has that continual cleansing of the blood as he continually walks in the light and confesses those sins that he will, despite his best efforts, inevitably commit. But thanks be to God, we have that continued forgiveness. But for those who have never obeyed the gospel, that forgiveness is not theirs, nor is the privilege of prayer in order to have that forgiveness. But that privilege can be yours the moment you determine that you're going to obey and that you complete that obedience. Believing with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, or dying in your sins, John 8, 24, repenting of your sins, Luke 13, 3, confessing Jesus to be the Christ, Matthew 10, 32, and then being buried in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, Jesus said, Mark 16, verse 16. The blood awaits in the water where Jesus will meet you, as it were, with his blood to cleanse you from every sin and allow you to arise to walk in newness of life and experience the greatest peace that has ever been made available through the culmination of God's love in the giving of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, on Calvary. If you need to respond to that love, do so now as we stand and sing to encourage you.